Well, so today I'd, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Dean Weinkauf. Uh, he's the Dean of uh, University of St. Thomas. I've known Don for time. We'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, I'll, I'll give a little bit of a profile. Don is, uh, he was a professor of chemical engineering in Socorro. Um, he, prior to that, though, he also worked for the Shell Oil Company as a research engineer. He holds a PhD from the University of Texas. But he's been the dean at St. Uh, Thomas now, 2008. It's my calculation, that's what, 13 years? So, relative newbie on the block, you know, a young dean, I suppose. Don? No, joking aside, you've got so much experience there, Don. But I can also say, having known you for some time, um, that Don's a, Don's a fun guy. He's got a call with his students. I witnessed that when I went to visit him a few years ago. Um, a lot of fun to, 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 to be around. And I met the famous chess club at the engineering dean's meetings where we went to, to the various conferences around the world. So, Don, thanks very much for to join me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Paul, and, and thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. It is. It, it would be nice if we were not having to drink coffee, you know. It would be, yeah. Yeah. This, these these are not a little more relax, relaxed environment, right? <laughs> But you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to to meet with us today. But you know, before we get to the really tough questions about you know what you do with you, what set you on this path of engineering in the first place? What was the trigger for you? And and because I hear that students don't really fully appreciate what engineering is when they start their undergraduate process. That'd be interesting. Yeah, you know, I I. I this this question is is not it's not a softball question. I think it's it's really a, a core question to our work as you know engineering educators. I mean, we have to ask ourselves what were those moments, you know, early in our careers where we we found engineering. And you know, in my case, I'm from a very small town in the state of Wisconsin, uh, where I didn't see an engineer. A town of a thousand people, I didn't know what engineers did. Um, but I had some mentors, you know, high school teachers that, that led me in this direction that, that pointed me that, that maybe engineering would be something um, that would be good for me. In fact, I remember telling my chemistry professor, you know, I want to be a chemist uh, or a chemistry teacher in high school. I want to be a chemist. And he said, well, let's rethink this and, because I think he saw something else in me. Um, and in fact, my, my PhD dissertation is dedicated to that moment. Um, that that chemistry teacher just said, you know, what else can you be doing? And uh, from there, I found engineering, and again, I didn't know yeah. what it was, uh, yeah. but it's been a joy ever since. And and really, the surprise is is that you know I think we view uh, you know engineering as as somewhat of a technical uh, driven education, and it is, but it's far more about taking teams of people towards technical solutions. And that's what I found in my work at Shell. It's what I found in, in my work in academia is that regardless of what we think about engineering uh, in terms of, you know, technical skills driven, really a talent really? moving talent. And then you started Shell or, or was that just one of the jobs you had before you went into Well, yeah, no, I, I got my PhD at Texas Austin and then uh, went on to work for Shell Oil Company. Again, a team of, you know, folks all around the world uh, having to navigate everyone's uh, different impressions of, of where the technology needed to go. We are working on the development of a new introduction of a new plastic material for Shell Oil Company that, um, again, it was just such an exciting place to be. 
uh, I really got my, I, I guess my, my, um, uh, really my deep engineering experience there, just learning uh, about what it takes to bring a technology to fruition. And I'll go back. It's about people. Yeah. Uh, I tell this to students all the time. There are a thousand or a hundred solutions to every problem. You know, what's going to make your solution the one that, that thrives? And I'll tell you right now, it's not going to be because you're going to calculate your way to the top. You're going you're gonna to drive <laughs> solutions that, that are responsive and receptive to all of the members of your team. Uh, and so it is people. It's about people, people. Yeah, I, yeah people ask me, what, 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 are, what are the success factors? When you're running a company, I say it's three things. It's people, people, and people. I use that line all the time. And, and you know, I, I, I have to say, when, when I talk to people about war, when I'm interviewing now, a lot of it's around your character. How do you interact with other people? How do you, you know, can you read a room? Those, those kinds of things are really important. And I guess that leads me into a good segue because I think the thing that's on top of everyone's mind right now is, and I'm a big believer in project work. And, and, you know, what are the kind of challenges that you faced in, in, in keeping that going in, in, in during the pandemic for the last you know, 12 or so months? Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, of anything that we've learned um, in the pandemic is how important it is to sustain culture um, in the years in advance of this incredible disruption. Uh, if we had not yeah. focused on our teamwork and our culture that we thrived on, and reliance on one another and our own resiliency based on our culture uh, and based on the core questions that we ask when we're faced with difficult questions um, or difficult you know, divergence in, in, in our path. You know, as long as we keep those core questions of why are we doing this uh, and we answer those questions, then the solutions and the next steps become a lot easier. And I think of, of anything, um, you know, what we've learned with the pandemic is is our, our resiliency and our reliance on our core culture um, because, and that needs to be fostered and, 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 and fomented, you know, years in advance of any disruption. So, you know, as soon as you lose sight of that, um, you are setting yourself up for, for you know, uh, really failure during disruptions. Like I said, I've been to your campus and I've seen you interact with your faculty, but amazing was the interaction that you had with your students. So you are connected with your students so you lead by example and, and i think yeah well you know I, I think that that's that is the key in fact you know as deans that's probably the biggest um concern we have it is taking that very major step away and then how do you sustain that because that's what that's what we thrive on development of our students um and you know so you have to work hard to make time and space for that those relationships to exist um and you know it's difficult as deans uh, but if we can get more deans with that same sort of perception, then then that culture spreads. Um, yeah, no, I, I I can't exist without students, and that's why you get into this business uh, because of students and their development. So, uh, and I, I think if if we have young yeah. deans out there, uh, I would suggest that 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 they that they make that a priority in their in, the, in their sustainability as as a great dean. So, you know, in, in, in that vein, so when you started, like I said, you, you do a lot of project-based work. Mm -hmm. How have you maintained the team spirit, you know, in this artificial environment, you know, this online world? Well, you know, our classroom experience and, and our you know, lab experience has been, you know, entirely disrupted. Um, 
And that is a real test. That's been the real challenge uh, that we've had um, in, in this time is that, uh, you know, did that as I've talked about is our, we, we rely heavily on um, that relationship with students and connections. Um, you know, if we, I think we talked a little bit about this, about if you, if in the, in our pre pandemic times, if we had uh, 30 uh, students in our class, you, you would have three or four students that you needed to pay close attention to, to offer those extra, you know, office hours, knowing that they were maybe have been working two jobs or, you know, knowing that they're maybe a little bit fragile in terms of their safety nets, in terms of their success in engineering. Yeah. And, and I will say that this has been the most difficult part of the pandemic is that those three or four students now in that class of 30 where you needed to expend a large amount of energy um, on whether it's projects or you know, getting together with other students or making sure that they've made your office hours, that those three or four students now have expanded to 20 to 25. Uh, and so it's been an exhausting process of prioritizing the development and connections with our students. You know, in this period of time, where the numbers of the, I'm not saying special cases anymore, the, the number of cases of, 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 of different multimodal you know, connections with these students has just expanded tremendously. And I think of the one thing that we're, we're missing or, or losing here in this time is, is just really the exhaustion of our faculty who are prioritizing those connections uh, and just needing to expend so much energy to sustain them. For the different stories that are happening in our students' lives, and let's not forget the different stories that are happening in our own faculty's lives. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the the project-based stuff. I mean, just to get back to, I mean, we were mailing out laboratory kits to our students, uh, you know, breadboards and things like that, so that the students could be working in the laboratory, you know, remotely uh, with the equipment. Uh, you know, maybe not the high-end oscilloscopes and things like that to do the analysis, but certainly uh, the, the creativity that our faculty had just to break through. Um, those barriers that they insist upon uh, on breaching uh, to connect with our students. So I think as we move through this, you put a lot of things in place and, and, and like understanding the journey of your faculty, but all of the students out there, that, that's an eye-opening experience as well. And in, 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 in some cases, you know, you, you found out probably more than you wanted to learn, but moving beyond that, I think the humanity, the humanities, the, the humanity, you and your faculty is probably going to be stronger. What other things do you think you're going to take away from the pandemic that are positive in terms of uh, education moving forward? Um, you know, so, I mean, are you, are you talking about taking away or positives? I mean, I think, you know, there are some real positives on the other side of this too, you know, um, you know, uh, the, uh, that complete disruption that's happened uh, has forced a lot of learning, as you said. Um, I think uh, we've been fortunate to uh, have entered this pandemic in terms of, um, in the time of great reliability. Um, uh, if you were, if this pandemic would have struck five years ago, um, my guess is, is that it would have been complete chaos. So the reliability of technology has really been amplified. Oh, I see. Um, and I also think uh, that we've learned to communicate very differently as well. Uh, you know, the number of, of quick check-in short uh, sessions that I have with both faculty leaders, our board members, our, uh, our alumni, 
uh, we can check in for a 20 minute meeting uh, just to give you an update yeah. on, on all this stuff. So uh, we, we, we do have some, some positives on the other side of this that, that um, we can't ignore. You know, something else that I think you're going to see emerging, Paul, too, is that um, you're going to start to see aggregations of smaller universities um, using combining their expertise. So let's just say St. Thomas has two outstanding world-renowned experts in thermal fluids or in uh, you know artificial intelligence. Well, what if we got together with two or three other universities to offer a master's program, which is a collection of the best talent? And again, I think that that collaborative spirit, that expectation that education can be delivered along these lines, especially in these niche areas where uh, you know many of the smaller universities might not have the the let's just say the the aggregation of of, of the numbers of team members that it takes to do that. Um, you're, I think you're going to start to see a proliferation of that, uh, not only from the badging kind of stuff, but actually full blown degrees uh, that could be navigated. Uh, amongst a, cl uh, a consortium of smaller universities that have particular expertise to, to, to collect their, their ideas. So whether you're technical sales and offering demonstrations or advancing, I would say, uh, uh, areas of master's programs and advanced education, th th those things are going to be the positives on the other side of this. Well, well that, that, that's a conversation I was the other day, that the notion that um, what you could have a degree in one program where in a certain area uh, but why can't you take that course with somebody who's a university you know just up the road somewhere now that leads me into the question because obviously most of the united states had a profound impact on the finances um, mm. of universities right so maybe maybe with that idea and, and another have you managed the financial side of the of the equation and, and what are the challenges that you think might linger on yeah um there's a couple of things that that really have i think have been impacting uh, our our work and, and number one i think is uncertainty uh, if you look at last spring of 2020 uh what you saw is just basically a recoiling of of ideas um just caused by the idea of just so much level of uncertainty you know as a, our trustees at the university of st thomas were asking us to do scenario planning from you know 30 percent loss in revenue to 10 percent loss in revenue uh and we started with a 10 percent loss in revenue and, and and to be quite honest that was a that was a pretty good guess uh and so we we immediately initiated scenario one planning with the hope that we wouldn't have to do scenario two three and four um, but really what that did was it was just it really just acknowledged that the, the level of uncertainty last spring when budgets start to get set it was so you know it, it was su such a uh, you know up in the air uh, that I think you saw a recoiling of, of sort of innovation and, and ideas about how classrooms could change other than revamping all of the classrooms uh, to be uh, have an online presence so there was there was that uncertainty um, the other thing I think the other that uh, a lot of deans and uh, edge, higher ed learn is our reliance on the whole the whole spread of the university. Um, we forgot that you know our dormitories have a certain number of fixed costs, uh, and whether they're operating at 100% or 80% or 60%, those fixed costs remain, and they impact the whole university. So I think our in reliance that the idea of, of one university really was 
was brought up here. So uh, no one's going to be thinking about my college anymore, or shouldn't be, uh, because the impacts on, on these major uh, disruptions are, are going to be broad spread. But I, I think right now, looking forward, uh, I think the you know the the lights at the end of the tunnel, the edge of the forest is clear. Uh, that clarity is is really and, and certainty is is starting to resolve itself. And so our budgeting process is 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 not very much different um, from what we would have had uh, in the year prior to the pandemic. So because so, because uh, what what you're saying is quite interesting. Now your natural instinct is more likely to consider the whole as opposed to means that exist within the university being parochial. And do you, do you get a sense of sharing amongst uh, the, well, the, uh, the schools? Is it going to get better, do you think, or, or are we going to go back to the old stuff? Well, you know, those, 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 let's just say tensions and vying for attention and university, especially when there's funding and, and faculty lines being distributed, you know, that, I mean, we always want to be tooting our horn and and talking about you know what we're doing, um, but as I said, I think the realization that um, this pandemic brought is that things like this, this level of disruption, uh, can really uh, impact the, the whole university, regardless of of who's growing, who isn't. Uh, so yes, I do think you know this pandemic has brought on that level of of interdependence. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, with the program, the, the program where we have expertise in different uh, in different universities, uh, I you know, for example, at St. Thomas, we have a uh, with our shared with the School of Business or College of Business, uh, we have a business analytics and a data science program inside of our School of Engineering. Those those two programs have three or four overlapping courses, which are taught from uh, faculty expertise in both colleges, and so. That's the kind of thing that you know maybe before didn't exist, but will now be you know amplified by this really this new reliance on interdependence because we can't build that expertise, you know, you know and sustain it in these smaller and smaller units. And 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 so so the interdependent resources between maybe different uh, schools within the university, sharing resources with different universities who may have expertise in, in another area. Have you have you uh, experimented with remote labs, like using labs from other places, or then using labs that you've had? Yeah, I, you know, we, you know, I would say that the initial response was to make sure that our classrooms, our traditional classrooms, became connected. Um, and then I would say that you're going to start to see maybe a change in that mindset towards the laboratories, uh, because the same issues are going to exist. Uh, and I think that they're, they exist um, in many facets, and maybe I would say an emerging facet of that is trying to reach students earlier. Um, um, but it also, uh, the, the, the nature of these laboratories is improving to such an extent that uh, the virtual components, the I mean, the holographic components, the immersion that that, that some of these things are are are, are emerging with. Uh, I think we're going to see that's going to be the next step here. Is okay. We saw the classroom innovation and renovation. That was pretty straightforward. You know, cameras, microphones, speakers. You know, multi. You know, recording capability uh, and modalities. Uh, and now we're going to see that moving towards the laboratories. And and maybe not out of a sense of replacing the hands-on experience on campuses, but I would view it more as an as an outreach component, uh, especially for the early uh, early laboratory sessions, uh, and then addressing uh, again that diversity where we you know we we might have 
uh, collaborations with universities, you know, outside of our, our, our own region. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's an area that's near and dear to my heart, the idea of having virtual labs that students can use 24-7, mm -hmm. and then, you know, they can actually do some of the fundamental understanding, get some technical understanding, go into the, into the lab and communicate their ideas or their concerns and have a deeper understanding, a deeper discussion with the, with the faculty. That's really important. You know, and you raise a really good point. Um, what about being able to repeat the experiment? You know, what we see in, with, our, with our students in our recorded lectures and remote lectures is, is not uh, necessarily that they like the freedom of watching it once. They love the freedom of doing it twice without right. impacting the time of the professor. So, you know, what you said is, you know, maybe true, but what about testing different variables? You know, I didn't have the time in the two hour lab session to try this. And now that I'm writing up the report, um, what if I did try this? I think those virtual lab components, you know, might allow for that experimentation, uh, maybe even outside of the traditional classroom time. Well, well, to be honest, what we're finding is that students are spending more time on them because they do repeat and try again. And then thing which I'd love, you, I'd love to get your perspective on this because you've been an educator for a long time, that notion of learning from your peers, that eureka moment? You know, I, I think that eureka moment or, you know, and I, I mentioned the word breaking things. I, I taught computer programming for engineers for a, a number of years at my former institution. And, and what I was stunned by was that the students with software were, were afraid of making a mistake. What if I hit this button and the, and the program just goes into a continuous loop? It's like, well, what's <laughs> and I, and you know that, and I, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the, the Tootsie Roll pop, you know, with the owl, you know, how many licks does it take to get the center of a Tootsie pop? And the turtle doesn't know. And the, you know what the other animal doesn't know. And finally the owl just says, well, let me see one, two, three, you know, it's, it's, that is what we need to get. And, and to be very honest, some of this, you know, equipment is not only from a safety standpoint, but, you know, cost, um, you know, maybe we don't want students to be making those. So let's just say mistakes. We love people breaking things here at St. Thomas because that makes you, they have to get on the phone and learn how to fix it. But in these virtual labs, not only after hours, uh, but, but also there might be just a, a, a less of a tendency to fear that they're going to do something wrong. And who knows? What if the system goes out of control? Yeah, just then, we, then we just watch it, watch it spin out of control on the on the screen and not in real life. <laughs> well, I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, because you know, for example, in our world, your robots, you know, they're a they're expensive, and second, if they get out of control, they can cause a lot of damage, right? So, so if you can practice your your trade things in a safer environment, and we talked a little bit about the democratization or the accessibility, is that something that uh, you think is going to be be improved by what's happened down the road? Yeah, I I do, and and again, getting even back to the virtual lab components, the you know what we face here in Minnesota is that we have a population of about uh, almost six million people, but nearly four million of that is in a very concentrated section of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, um, and so how do we reach those out outstate groups? How do we reach? Uh, the uh, Native American tribes where they're at. Um, so I do think uh, all of this, whether it's virtual laboratories and how do we reach to your students, to your college students, 
who you know have jobs and and are you know constrained by that with families and jobs and then then working on their two-year associate degrees if, if any of those things can be broken down this is where you know we're going to be needing uh, to see that now getting back to your point about democratization of technology um this has been i, I love this conversation because this is where engineering educators uh, really need to be let me say concerned and the reason why it's a concern is that you have to remember for uh, every eighth grader who is now experimenting with CAD, that first year experience in CAD is now diminished in value because we these are going to be old things. I mean, I remember 15 years ago, uh, starting into this deanship where we were still having our freshmen work on Lego robotics. And yeah. I looked to the eighth grade, you know, high, junior highs around here, and these guys are doing Lego yeah. robotics. The whole game is upping, whether it's 3D printing or CAD drawing. Um, and, and this has been true. I mean, uh, 25 years ago, uh, you know, when I worked for Shell Oil Company, we had this very sophisticated fluid mechanics software um, where only, only uh, really mature PhD level mathematicians, fluid uh, dynamicists could really drive this software. Well, this is the same software now that we're introducing to sophomores and juniors in, in our fluid mechanics course. Right. So, all of that stuff is being, you know, that accessibility, that democratization of technology is really forcing engineering to up its game. We've got to be, you know, moving past some of these, let's just say, routine things uh, and, and redesigning our curriculum that really ups the game uh, for uh, engineers to be really exploring their, their, the frontiers of these technologies versus be really sort of practicing what is accessible to, to high school students. So how do you find that? Because I know I've had this conversation because there's this within faculty in some cases, and then on the other the other extreme, you've got people that want to break everything and throw it all away and start from scratch. There are so many tools that we can use today, but therein lies a real problem, I think, is, is what do you take out, there's, there's put in, do you yeah. have those debates? I mean, what's what's the uh, kind of feedback you get? You no, know, it's it's the five pound bag and ten pounds of stuff problem, right? It's we talk about this all of all of the time, um, you know, because we you know we have things like, oh, are you teaching leadership and are you teaching character and ethics and and all of these components, which of course they're they're said in ABET, but are they really developed uh, in our students? And, and if we ask more, what are we going to take out? Um, you know, uh, mathematics, we've talked about this, a, you know, uh, uh, Laplace transforms, you know, all of those things were derived uh, to make differential, like those things were make differential equations and manipulations of differential equations easier. Now our computational capability is so advanced. So do I have the answer? No. I'm one person that loves to have these conversations uh, and our faculty are embracing those, uh, but we have to recognize how critical it is. Uh, because as I said, if if we start every one of our freshmen at the level that we began with 20 years ago and walk them through the, the derivations and the technology and all that stuff, that time we've spent with them is time that we've missed not taking to the right. next level because all of those, uh, let's just say, um, non-technically oriented people have access to the, those those same tools. And, and we really need to be careful as engineering educators um, that we are that we're good stewards of our time with our students so that we can take them to the next level.
Yeah, and I think it's having you know some some really talented engineers. You know, a number of them, different fundamental skills. They have a in, in in controls and robotics and that kind of area. But the one thing they all know is that none of them can design a whole product by themselves. They have to be able to work with other people. You know, they have to accept that they have to pass something off and take it back. And that community and that is really important, and I, and, I, and I think those are that's where the, some of the project work becomes you know, critically critically important. Yeah, and yeah. immersion in that experience. Uh, you know, our, we have an incredible senior design clinic, and I think you saw the the manifestation yeah. of those projects here at St. Thomas. Yeah. You know, great relationships with industry, real authentic market driven projects. Uh, the, the and the demands on the students are real. I mean, they they really feel. I wouldn't say well, that, well. The pressure, the pressure of what it takes, and I'll tell you right yeah. now, uh, over the last 13 years and hundreds and hundreds of these projects with industry, uh, I'll, I'll, if you asked any one of our faculty members, what was the number one reason for, let's just say, not failure of uh, of that project and not succeeding where it could have or not met its goals, and the number one reason yeah. is that the team, the team didn't didn't get there right. together. Yeah. Um, there's no yeah. question about that. I mean, in fact, the, the technology is very rarely the reason why these projects fail. Very rarely. That, that the students have that capability of, of really advancing really? the technical components of these projects to a level that are, you know, that our industry sponsors are really surprised by, uh, that, that, that students have this capability. But I will say the number one reason for Failure or missing goals is that the fact that the team can't get there together. Having been to your campus, you know, having been to your campus, you know, anyone that's listening, you should you should contact Don and, and make your way there because when when you have uh, the joy with which they are doing their projects with, I mean, you you, you it, it that is that capture value. Of, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, they they really take it on. And, you know, it's funny how the project starts as we're doing this for the customer, and all of a sudden you see this ownership develop, and it has to. You know, it's, yeah, and and you know you know this from your own work in life and after after college, unless you take that ownership, that that the projects are not gonna uh, not gonna succeed the way they should or could. Um, so yeah, I would say um, that ownership evolves, and then what you see at the end manifestation and delivery of the working prototype to the customer um, there's just a real pride um, and 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 I, and I will say this that uh, one I think one of the secrets is, is that we dangle failure we, we let them dangle um, and mm -hmm. they have to work it out themselves so well you know and, and, and I and I'll just reiterate you know and go to your school is going to university that has a tremendous character and it's amazing culture. A lot of it stems from yourself. I've witnessed you with the students, how excited they are to see you in a bar after graduation. That's unusual. So, oh, oh, sorry. No, that wasn't you. That's okay. Um, I know you've got lots of friends, alumni, people who've graduated. I'm going to try and make it down there again sometime, you know, for sure. The home of Tyler Moore, I remember that was a, a statue that I saw, which is very um, yeah. Famous. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. Well, Welcome anytime, Paul. Uh, you know. By the way, we're we're building a new building with a new controls lab and a new. Uh, that's uh, we're going to break ground uh, next spring. So. Uh, 
We're out. Well, we're you heard it here, folks. You heard it here, folks. We're going to come down there and help you help you fill up that lab with. Great, great. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in person. Uh, yeah, Paul, I really, I, I, I miss, I miss your company, and I, and I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to, to raising a glass uh, sometime soon. Um, hopefully, this, this fall, sometime would be. Would be hopefully, bad. it will be. Thanks right. very much, indeed. All Cheers. The rest.